This morning we'll be reading together Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, through chapter 2, verse 3, and then we'll skip down and read chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. So Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. Then God said, let us make a man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord had commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, please also turn with me in your order of worship to the confessional reading elements. This morning we are confessing together Lord's Day 42, uh, Lord's Day 42 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which consists of question and answers 110 through 111. As always, we'll begin by reading question 92, which is the specific command that we are considering within the Ten Commandments. I will read the question if you'd please respond by reciting the answer. What is God's law? You shall not steal. Question 110. What does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? He forbids not only outright theft and robbery, which governing authorities punish, but in God's sight, theft also includes all evil tricks and schemes designed to get our neighbor's goods for ourselves, whether by force or means that appear legitimate, 
such as inaccurate measurements of weight, size, or volume, fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, or any other means forbidden by God. In addition, God forbids all greed and pointless squandering of his gifts. Question 111 asks, What does God require of you in this commandment? That I do whatever I can and may for my neighbor's good. That I treat others as I would like them to treat me. And that I work faithfully so that I may help the needy in their hardship. Let us pray. Merciful Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. And as we uh, hear, as we read your Lord, we uh, hear and read your word, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we may inwardly digest this teaching for our growth and conformity into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, boys and girls, what are the three main sections of our catechism and which section are we in? Annabelle? Very good. Now again, to review the grace section, what are the three elements of true faith? Marcus? Now, and uh, what's the content of this faith? Marcus? Apostles' Creed. Very good. What, what benefit do we receive when we profess this true faith, boys and girls? Isaiah? Christ's righteousness, yes. We are justified by faith, and as a result of that, we receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, where does this faith come from? Noel? The Holy Spirit. What, what does the Holy Spirit use to create this faith? Noel again? The Word, yes. The preaching of the Word, which, again, boys and girls, is why church is so important. What do we do when we come to church? We hear the word preached, which is the Holy Spirit's means to create and strengthen faith in our hearts. And the Holy Spirit also uses the sacraments to confirm and nourish the same faith. Now, what are the two keys of the kingdom, boys and girls? Annabelle? Good. Church discipline, the preaching of the word. Now, in this gratitude section, as you know, our main motivation for obeying God is not to earn our salvation, not to maintain our salvation, but rather it's gratitude. Gratitude for this free gift of salvation that we've received through the merits of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, what are the three elements of a good work? You remember the three elements of a good work. Ezekiel? Your glory or God's glory? To God's glory. To God's glory. Very good. Yeah, from true faith, done according to the law of God and unto the glory, uh, uh, law of God unto the glory of God. And so now, the last number of weeks, we've been considering an exposition of the Ten Commandments as the standard to which our good works are to conform. And the two, or the division of the Ten Commandments consists of love for God and love for neighbor. Now, boys and girls, what question does the first commandment answer? Marcus? Who we should worship. How about the second and third commandment? Annabelle? How we should worship. And what about the fourth commandment? Isaiah? Um, close. Noel? When we should worship. Yes. And now in the, the fifth commandment through the tenth commandment, I'll touch upon our love for neighbor. So uh, 
Two weeks ago, we looked at the sixth commandment, which calls us positively to, 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 to love our neighbor. We are, God forbids, murder, and the opposite of murder is, is, is promoting the good of our neighbor. It's representative of the entire second table. And now we are looking at the eighth commandment. And you'll notice that the eighth commandment forbids, of course, stealing. You shall not steal. But it also forbids the squandering of God's gifts. You'll notice that's what the catechism says in question and answer 110. The squandering of God's gifts. But positively, God calls us in the eighth commandment to work. To work hard, to work diligently for the purpose of generosity so that we may be able to help those in need. So it negatively forbids stealing, it forbids the squandering of gifts, but then positively it calls us to work, to work hard so that we might be generous to those around us. Now, of course, all of God's law is written upon our hearts by virtue of creation. However, the Eighth Commandment in particular is especially representative of what it means to be made in the image of God. The Eighth Commandment is especially representative of what it means to be made in the image of God. And that's one of the ideas I really want to press into as we consider this, this commandment as God's will for our lives. And so we're going to look at three, three things in particular this morning. We're first going to consider how the Eighth Commandment uh, related to the first Adam. Second, we're going to consider how the Eighth Commandment uh, related to the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And then lastly, we'll consider how the Eighth Commandment applies to us. So first, you'll notice in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God made man in his image. The image of God consists of both being and doing. The image of God consists of both being and doing. So God created man in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. This is the being aspect of the image. However, God called man to put these natural qualities to good use. God commissioned man for a certain task. God created man with a purpose, as we considered in, in Psalm 139. And what was that purpose according to Genesis chapter 1? It's a purpose of exercising dominion over creation, of ruling as God rules, as working as God worked. In fact, in Genesis 1.26, when God says, and let them have dominion, that's a purpose clause in, in the original language. So you could really translate it as, let us make man in our image after our likeness so that they may have dominion over the fish of the sea. God made man for a purpose. And that purpose was to rule as God ruled, to, to work as God worked. And so the image consists of both being and doing. And in the narrative of Genesis 1 and 2, we see that man picks up where God left off. God named some of the creatures. However, God commissioned Adam to name the rest of the creatures. And we learned that whatever Adam named them, that was their name. We see that God created two human beings. Adam and Eve, but yet God commissioned Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with their descendants. 
God worked in his creation week through his powerful word. And then in Genesis 2.15, God commissions Adam to work and keep the garden. And so man picks up where God left off in creation. Furthermore, we see that God rests. He enters his eternal seventh-day Sabbath rest after that first work week. And he promises to, to give Adam a Sabbath rest as well if Adam perfectly completes his work. Thus, the Eighth Commandment is representative of what it means to be made in the image of God. We all have been gifted with rationality, intelligence, creativity, industry, and God calls us to use these gifts, these natural qualities, for good use. For the use of exercising dominion over this creation in creating order out of chaos as God created order out of chaos in the beginning. Well, we know that Adam was not faithful in this task. He squandered the gifts that God had given him. Rather than seeking to rule under God's rule, he sought to usurp the authority of God. And he plunged himself and his descendants not into eternal Sabbath rest, but into ruin and misery. And so when we think about the Eighth Commandment, the Eighth Commandment calls us to work. It calls us to exercise dominion, and Adam failed in that task. He failed in that very natural task that God had commissioned him to do. Which is why then in Genesis 3.15, God promises a seed of the woman. He promises a second Adam to do the work, the eighth commandment work, the image of God work that the first Adam failed to do. Consequently, then, Jesus Christ was the only human being who didn't squander those natural gifts that God has given to every image bearer, but rather he faithfully put them to good use as he resisted temptation, as he crushed the head of the serpent, as he conquered death itself. Consequently, then, Jesus Christ earned the right to enter God's eternal seventh-day Sabbath rest. What happens after Jesus ascends into heaven in our creeds? What happens? What does he do? He sits, right? His session. Christ's session in heaven symbolizes or teaches us that he entered the new creation. Jesus Christ was the first human being to experience the new creation as a human being because he was the only one who was able perfectly and faithfully do the work. That eighth commandment, image of God work that is written upon our hearts. Well, we as fallen image bearers then are called to profess faith in this Jesus, this second Adam. And as we profess faith in, in this Jesus, we are given heavenly citizenship. We are given citizenship in the world to come. We are given citizenship in the new creation. We then enter God's rest. God's original destiny for mankind. Through the work of Christ. However, as the people of faith, we are called to still work. We are called to obey the Eighth Commandment. The Eighth Commandment isn't canceled out for us just because we rest in Christ and he has worked 
Uh, he has done the work that we cannot do. We still are called to live lives of gratitude as we've been reflecting upon the last several weeks. And so this eighth commandment, this eighth commandment, which is representative of the image of God, it's in some sense representative of, of that original creation mandate, applies to us, applies to us as redeemed image bearers, as citizens of heaven and the age to come. And so the first thing that we need to consider as we think about uh, how this eighth commandment applies to us as those who are in Christ, the first thing that we need to realize is we do not pick up where Adam left off when it comes to that image of God work, that creation mandate. We do not pick up where Adam left off. We are not many Adams. We are not second Adams. There was only one second Adam. There was only one individual who picked up where Adam left off, and that was our Lord Jesus Christ. We do not, through our work, redeem creation. We do not, through our work, issue in the age to come. There was only one human being who did that. That was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ perfectly did the work, and through that faithful work, brought the age to come into this present evil age. And consequently, then, the work that we are called to is not redemptive. You know, the work of an artist or the work of the craftsman will not adorn the new creation. Because we are not many atoms. We are not second atoms. And so we're called to do the work, but we do not pick up where the first atom left off. Rather, we obey the creation mandate. We obey this image of God called to work that's represented in the Eighth Commandment as it is refracted through God's covenant with Noah. Now, God's covenant with Noah is a covenant in which God promises not redemption, but preservation. God promises to preserve this social order. He doesn't promise to redeem this social order in the Noahic covenant. And in that Noahic covenant, God reestablishes three foundational institutions. He reestablishes the institution of the natural family. And here we see the, the reiteration of that original creation mandate. He says, be fruitful and multiply uh, and fill the earth. So God reestablishes the institution of, of, the, of the natural family. But God also reestablishes enterprise institutions, institutions that serve to meet the growing needs of a society. God in the Noahic Covenant tells mankind that, that plants and animals are going to be given to them for food, which is an implicit call to work. Dinner doesn't just magically appear on your dinner plate in the ancient world. You have to work for it. And so God is calling mankind to work in order to provide for the needs of a growing society. But third of all, God also reestablishes judicial institutions. As he says, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For God created man in his image. God calls man to exercise a strict retributive justice. And so when we think about our cultural work in this age, we should think about that work according to the parameters of the Noahic covenant. It consists of familial life vocational life, civil life. This is our cultural work that we are called to in this present age. And as we pursue this work, we need to remember God's intended purpose and goal for this work. It's not redemption, it's preservation. This work is to be done according to the end 
of God's covenant with Noah, a covenant that we participate in with unbelievers, non-Christians, people from many different walks of life and beliefs. And so when we think about the Eighth Commandment and the Eighth Commandment's call for us to work, we should think about that call to work according to the parameters given to us in the, eighth, in the Noahic Covenant. Familial life, vocational life, civil life. And we see that the New Testament also calls us to work according to these parameters in the Noahic Covenant. Think about how often the apostles speak about the goodness of the natural family and how Christians are not to uh, shed these very natural things of marriage and child rearing, but rather these are, these are very good things for Christians to engage in and participate in. So for instance, in Ephesians chapter 5.22, Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands. And then just a few verses later, he says, Husbands, love your wives. Ephesians 6.4, Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So Paul is saying that participating in marriage, participating in the rearing of children, are very good things for Christians to do. The apostles also call upon Christians to engage in civil society, as, as uh, Paul and Peter both urge Christians to submit and honor the civil magistrate. We are not to segregate ourselves off from common society, but rather we are to be members of it as we submit and honor the magistrate. We see Paul saying this in Romans 13, and Peter says the very, the very same thing in 1 Peter 2. Furthermore, the apostles also call Christians to work at common vocations in order to serve our neighbor and provide for the needs of a, of a society, of a community. So Paul says in Ephesians 4.28, as he reflects upon the Eighth Commandment, he says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him, uh, let him labor, doing honest work with, our own, with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul's urging Christians to work, and the work he has in mind is common work throughout the week in order to serve one's neighbor. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are do doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your own hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. What's Paul co uh, commanding Christians to do? To aspire to work faithfully throughout the week in a common vocation. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11-12, through 12, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Again, Paul is urging Christians to work for the purpose of, of earning a living, providing for themselves, providing for a family, and, 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 and to be generous to those who are in need. 
And so when the Eighth Commandment calls us to work, it's calling us to do a very natural thing, something you could say is in our bones. We have, a, 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 we have that, and we have that sense as well, that we are made to work. We're not made to be idle. And we re receive satisfaction when we do work. We are made to work, and it's a very natural thing. However, this work, this cultural work, is defined according to the parameters of the Noahic Covenant. And we see that the apostles are thinking the very same thing as they repeatedly urge Christians to participate in familial life, vocational life, and civil life. Now, as we engage in these cultural pursuits, this cultural work, what is our temptation? Well, our temptation is to grow discontent in, in where we find ourselves in these various cultural pursuits. We may be discontent in singleness. We may be discontent in our marriage. We may be discontent in, uh, a couple may be discontent in their infertility. When it comes to vocational life, we may be discontent in our current job situation. We may be discontent when it comes to civil society in terms of the city and state in which we live. There's lots of things that we can be discontent about when we think about our cultural work according to these three institutions. And so no matter where we find ourselves in our cultural life, we are called to be content as we pursue the work called of us, or um, um, required of us in the Eighth Commandment. Now, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, the author is speaking about work as it pertains to our, um, uh, our work as it pertains to our um, vocational life. And he, he, he speaks of, um, excuse me, I don't know where that went. Um, but he speaks in Hebrews 13.5. He, 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 he tells Christians that they are not to give in to the love of money, but rather they are to be content in what they have. For he says, God promises to never leave you nor forsake you. And it's really interesting what the author of Hebrews is saying here. He's not forbidding money itself or the pursuit of money, but rather he's forbidding the love of money. Because what happens when we love money supremely is that we're constantly discontent because we never have enough. There's always someone out there who has more than, than we have. And we can broaden this out to the other domains of our cultural life. If we love anything supremely, if we love marriage, if we love children, if we love our spouse, if we love our job, if we love politics supremely, we will inherently become discontent. And so we are called to be content. And what does it mean to be content? Well, it means to be satisfied. It means to be okay in our present circumstances. One author defines contentment as finding peace in God's will in every circumstance of life. Finding peace in God's will in every circumstance of life. That's what we're called to do. Finding peace in God's will in every circumstance of life. Now, sometimes when we think about contentment, we, we think that is antithetical to this Eighth Commandment type of work we can sometimes conceive of contentment as laziness or a lack of ambition. But we can and should be content while at the same time seek to change our circumstances. 
So contentment is not necessarily antithetical to work or ambition or, or, um, or um, what we're called to do. One can be content and still desire to change their circumstances. One can be single, content in their singleness, but yet still responsibly pursue marriage. A couple can be content in their infertility, but still seek legitimate forms of assisted reproduction. One can be content in their current job situation, but seek out better jobs that have better work hours or better pay. One can be content in a sickness, a diagnosis, but also seek out forms of treatment to heal them from that disease. One can be uh, content in where they live and yet still seek to bring about good lasting change in their community or possible relocation. And so contentment is not antithetical to um, uh, this work that we're called to do. Rather, contentment is the soil from which this Eighth Commandment work is, is, is to spring forward from. Uh, contentment is the soil from which this Eighth Commandment work is to proceed from. So we are called to work out of a place, a disposition, a posture of contentment. Now, it's very easy. Now, if we don't foster this virtue of contentment, we will bring discontentment into every season of life we enter. The lie that we believe is that discontentment is caused by our circumstances. But that is not the case. Our circumstances may be the place uh, through which our discontentment expresses itself, but our circumstances do not cause our discontentment. Our, our discontentment is a matter of the heart. And really, it's, a, it's an issue of not finding our contentment in God who promises to never leave us nor forsake us. No matter what you're going through in this life, no matter what your season of, li season of life consists of, you can be content in this promise that the author of the Hebrews gives you in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. God promises to never leave you nor forsake you. When you cling to that promise, you have all that you need. And this is what the Apostle Paul was able to recognize. In 2 Corinthians 12, when he's praying about this thorn in the flesh, which was giving him great turmoil, he prays that God would take it away from him. But God responds, No, my grace is sufficient, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore, God was able, uh, Paul was able to boast and be content in that weakness because he recognized this promise of God that was sustaining him. And thus, we are called to work, to be diligent, to be responsible while we find our contentment in our God who promises to never leave us nor forsake us. And so to summarize um, what we've, we've thought about here, uh, the, first, the first Adam was called to work as the original image bearer of God, but yet he failed to do this work and, and consequently failed to enter God's seventh-day Sabbath rest. The second Adam comes and perfectly does this work and earns the right to enter that new creation. And we then, as the people of God, are called to profess faith in that second Adam and engage in cultural work, work that does not uh, bring in God's redemption, but rather work that is part of God's preservation of this current social order.